That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 102. It's titled, What It Takes to Be a Value Investor. 1999 was an amazing year for the U.S. stock market. U.S. large company stocks, as measured by the S&P 500 index, gained 25.2%, rising for the ninth consecutive year. In seven of those nine years, the S&P 500 appreciated double digits, leading to an annualized return of 17.8% from 1991 to 1999. The NASDAQ, a U.S. stock index with a large representation of Internet-related technology stocks, performed even better. It gained 86% in 1999. One out of six NASDAQ stocks appreciated over 100% that year, and 44% gained over 1,000%. By year-end 1999, the top 100 names in the NASDAQ were selling for an astounding 136 times trailing 12-month earnings. That's a price-to-earnings ratio, P.E., of 136. Five years earlier, in 1994, those same stocks were selling at a valuation of 23 times trailing 12-month earnings, or a P.E. of 23. Investors justified investing at these lofty valuations because it was the new economy. The world was going to be transformed by the Internet, and the old brick-and-mortar companies would be eaten for lunch by hungry startups with .com in their names. During this period, traditional value managers who sought to purchase stocks at a discount to the company's intrinsic values suffered terribly. There are plenty of stocks that met those value managers' criteria, particularly in small-cap stocks and, and mid-cap stocks. But holding them meant they significantly underperformed the market averages, because during this period, it was the biggest of the biggest names, and the market was being driven by technology stocks, internet-related stocks, and big-cap stocks. Those managers were losing clients who considered them dinosaurs for not adjusting their investment process for the new internet age. In March 2000, I flew to Chicago to meet with one of those beleaguered managers. His name was Robert Sanborn, and he managed the Oakmark Fund. This was the flagship mutual fund for the investment firm Harris Associates. Our institutional investment advisory firm had used Oakmark and Harris Associates as a value manager for our endowment, foundation, and pension clients for years. The main purpose of my meeting with Sanborn was to see how he was holding up amid the market bubble and to confirm he wasn't going to change his investment process and style, despite disgruntled clients pulling millions of dollars from his fund. The meeting was on a Friday, and I left Harris Associates' offices confident the firm would stick to their investment discipline. In the meeting, Sam Board reiterated much of what he had written in early 1999 to the Oakmark Fund shareholders. Here's a quote from that shareholder letter. Unlike many mutual fund managers, we never ponder whether a stock is going up. 
Rather, we always populate our fund with holdings that sell at the biggest discount to their true intrinsic value and have owner-oriented management, period. There are those who now say value is dead or the world has changed. I disagree. In our experience, price and value always come together, and that dynamic allows the Oakmark Fund to add value. Sometimes, as now, this process takes longer than some would like. However, as an investor in the fund and as one who totally believes in our investment philosophy, I will never abandon our approach. I know it works. The Monday after my meeting, Harris Associates notified us that they had fired Sanborn as portfolio manager for the Oakmark Fund, and he was leaving the firm. We were absolutely shocked. Apparently, the mutual fund board had lost confidence in Sanborn, and the financial pressure of cash outflows from the fund was just too great. What's ironic is after the move, Harris Associates, Harris Associates experienced even more outflows. As our firm pulled hundreds of millions of dollars of our clients' assets from the Oakmark Fund and from separate accounts that Harris Associates managed. One of our investment tenants is you have to have an investment culture and you, and you stick to your investment discipline. And they caved. They put cash outflows, investment flows ahead of their investment discipline, in our opinion. Now, the fund continued to do fine. The new manager did fine, but it was the issue of they violated one of our investment tenants. That same month, March 2000, our firm published a paper I had written titled, Should Fiduciaries Overweight Growth Stocks in Investment Portfolios? I worked on that paper for months because what we were seeing in our client portfolios is that they didn't want to rebalance. Their growth style has done so well, while the value style, including investments in in firms like Harris Associates, had suffered terribly. They were underperforming. And so you you had an overweight in the growth style investing. So I spent hours in the library of my alma mater, University of Cincinnati, digging through academic journals, trying to understand whether the investment world had indeed changed. I'd only been an investment professional for five years, And it was all during a raging bull market with double-digit type returns. I distinctly remember my first year in the investment business. The S&P 500 was up 37%. And I didn't have any historical perspective to figure out, is this normal or not? And so as I was going through the library, researching articles on on value investing, on growth investing, one of the thoughts was maybe it really is different this time. From my research, I learned the long-term performance of stocks is driven by three building blocks. And I use these same three building blocks to estimate returns for stocks over the next 10 years, as we do on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. The three building blocks are dividends, earnings growth, and what investors are willing to pay for those earnings. Every stock has an implied embedded growth rate priced into it. And investors are willing to pay a premium for stocks with higher expected earnings growth than for stocks whose earnings are slower and more erratic. That seems only natural. You would pay more for stocks that are growing faster. But here is the key. 
a stock will only outperform the market, let's say a major index, so let's say it's a large company stock, it will only be able to outperform the S&P 500 if its actual earnings growth exceeds the earnings growth rate already priced into that stock. Outperformance is not due to a company growing their earnings faster than other companies. All that matters is whether the company grows their earnings faster than what investors have assumed their earnings growth rate will be. In my paper, I wrote, Certainly the rise of the Internet and other new economy technological advances has had a profound impact on capital markets and on our daily lives. Without a doubt, growth stocks deserve a higher valuation than old economy value stocks since their earnings grow at a faster rate. Nevertheless, fiduciaries that overweight growth stocks in their portfolio must understand that their wager is not whether technology-related growth stocks will change the world as we know it. The answer to that question is a definite yes. Fiduciaries who overweight growth stocks are wagering that Wall Street analysts and other market participants are currently underestimating the earnings growth rate of those new economy stocks whereas historically they have overestimated earnings growth. If investors are willing to make the above bet, then the relevant question is, does the potential benefit of being correct more than offset the penalty of being wrong? The reason why growth investing lags value investing is this tendency that growth investors overestimate the earnings growth prospects of growth stocks. And then the... And then the the stocks or the companies miss their earnings growth rate, or they miss the earnings estimate, and then the stocks fall off. And so it's, it's overzealous investors thinking that good times will continue indefinitely, whereas value investors have very low expectations. They still need the growth of the value companies to outperform the embedded growth rate priced into value stocks, but because expectations are low, the hurdle is easier to overcome. If you'd like to get a copy of that article I wrote in 2000, and it has a lot of, of references to old academic articles, it, I spent months on it. It's a pretty well-written piece. And if you remember my insider's guide, you will have gotten a link to that article. But if you're not a member of my insider's guide, if you're a U.S.-based investor, if you text the word BUBBLE, B-U-B-B-L-E to the number 44222. You'll get a text back, so you text your email, and you'll immediately get that article sent to you. Or if you prefer, if you're outside of the U.S., just go to moneyfortherestofus.net on the homepage, sign up for my insider's guide, and I'll make sure you get a copy of that article. So it turns out that it really wasn't different that time. While the Internet continued to have a profound impact on our lives, investors significantly overestimated the earnings growth prospects of those same technology companies that were revolutionizing the economy. That same pattern continues today with the likes of Facebook, Twitter, Uber, and the next technology darling that comes along. In March 2000, the month Robert Sanborn was fired and the month I released my paper was also the top of the dot-com bubble. From 2000 to 2002, that NASDAQ fell 67%, obliterating the investment portfolios of many who truly thought it was different this time. 
Fortunately, in the case of our clients, most did rebalance the portfolio and because they had significant overweights and growth and they were spared much of the carnage because in in the sell-off of 2001, 2000, 2001, diversification actually worked because it was so concentrated in technology stocks. They sold off tremendously. But generally speaking, if you had a diversified portfolio, including the value investment style, you did okay. Shortly after the dot-com bubble burst, I brought on a new private foundation client. This was a family foundation, and they were true value investors. They understood value investing, and most of their managers were value managers. One of those managers was Seth Klarman. He ran the hedge fund, the Baupost Group. Seth has been managing money in terms of a partnership since 1983, and he's one of the most renowned investors in the world. In 1991, Klarman published a book called Margin of Safety. I think it only had one edition. You can buy it on Amazon for used for $1,600. Now, this particular foundation client wanted me to meet with all of their managers once a year. So I'd fly around the country and I would meet with their managers. And so for a number of years, I met with Seth Klarman. And I've learned more about investing, particularly value investing, from Klarman and watching how he ran his fund, the decisions he made, his thought process, than any other investor I know. And I've mentioned Klarman in the past. Well, I wanted to share with you things I've learned from Klarman about what it takes to be a value investor. And these are things I've learned from him personally, and he doesn't know who I am. Right, He probably doesn't even remember meeting with me. So don't, don't get the idea that, that we're close buddies because we're not. But I, I did, I've spent a number of hours with him over the years at one-on-one, and I've read part of Margin of Safety, and I've read some, or I've read pretty much all of his annual letters for, for many years. And I'm not going to quote him directly because... When, when it comes to hedge fund managers, it's, it's a little... I mean, you can, you can read, for example, there's a... I will quote from him at the very end of this episode because there is a section of the most recent, his 2015 letter that got published on Business Insider. So once it's out there, it, I'll, I, I think it's fine to quote from it. But in terms of, of letters that I might have, I just, I'm a little queasy about quoting... Directly, because typically these are reserved for the advisor or or the client. But I I can certainly paraphrase and and put it in my own words and share the lessons I learned from Seth Kluman. Here are the attributes that it takes to be a value investor. And the first is patience. Clark used to always say, price and value always come together. And so a value manager is trying to arbitrage the difference between price and value. They're purchasing something that is cheaper than its underlying value. But as Robert Sanborn said, it sometimes takes longer than we would like. You have to have patience for that value and price to come together. And one of the challenges is, and Carmen would say this, being early and being wrong looks exactly the same 99% of the time. One of the risks of being a value investor is that price and value never come together, that there is a value trap. 
And, and so you can be wrong <laughs> or you can be early. And they do look exactly the same. So you need to be patient. But you also need to balance that patience with arrogance. Klarman would say investing is an arrogant act. Because an investor, when they buy a security, they're effectively saying they know more than the seller as well as other buyers. They have some type of investment edge, competitive edge. So it takes arrogance to to invest. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. So... Value investors need to be patient, but they need to be arrogant. But at the same time, they need to be humble. They have to offset that necessary arrogance with a dose of humility, Klarman says. You always have to ask whether they you actually have the apparent advantage over other market participants in any potential investment. Do you have a competitive edge? And if the answer is no... The Baupost Group doesn't invest. And so when I would, I would meet with, with Klarman and, and learn about some things like this, I, you ask why I don't invest in individual stocks very often. The question is, do I have some type of in, edge? Maybe I'm too humble, but I don't think that most investors have an advantage because to be a value investor – the other criteria you have to have, you have to be very opportunistic. You have to look for opportunities where there is unsophisticated 
forced selling by investors. They're panicking. They're trying to get out at any cost. So you're buying for someone who doesn't know the value of the securities or the assets that they're selling, or they don't care. They just need to get out. And so oftentimes you're buying when everybody is selling, and you have to have some type of competitive edge. And so this takes a lot of work. Things that like the Balpost looks for is, is they're looking for companies that are messy. And I've seen this with other value managers. They like things that are not straightforward. They like investments that, that take a lot of legwork to get that informational edge because many investors are lazy. Right? It isn't as simple as screening to a quantitative screen for which value stocks are cheap. You need to dig in even harder. And things that they're looking at is, is there important change in the business results or investment expectations? Is the company restructuring or reorganizing? Are they issuing new securities that are being swapped out for, for new securities being swapped out for old ones? Are there securities that, that are out there that are, that are complex and subject to selling pressure? Are there asset classes that are capital-starved or areas where people are just trying to get out? And so because there's not enough capital, if you put capital in there, you can get an advantage. But oftentimes, you have to wait for opportunity. Being a value investor means waiting for those opportunities, which means oftentimes value investors hold cash, and they're willing to. They're not, they're not under this mandate where they feel like they have to be fully invested. And it is very, very difficult for a lot of professional managers to hold cash because when you hold cash, you might not get paid very much to hold that cash. But sometimes holding that cash gives you the dry powder and the opportunity to buy when those securities, when you can actually find something that is at, at a significant discount to its underlying value. So value investors are patient, arrogant, humble, opportunistic, and finally, they have a true understanding of risk. Klarman used to say that they are in the business of both risk-taking and risk avoidance. And risks that they they seek to avoid are market risks, such as the equity market could tumble, interest rate risk, the, 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 the impact of rising or falling interest rates on investments, the risk of inadequate diversification, they worry about country risks such as political, social, economic woes. They worry about credit risks. A company could, could, could default. But to achieve a return, you actually have to you, – you want to avoid risk, but at some point, you have to incur risk. And it, the issue is risk is, is not volatility. Risk is how much can you lose investing? What's your potential loss – and what is the probability of losing it? And that's often very, very difficult to do. Klarman would say it's unquantifi- unquantifiable in looking forward, but also looking backward in time, it's very, very difficult to figure out how much risk you took because there could have been things that may have happened that didn't happen that you were completely unaware and, and you just weren't able to evaluate. You just weren't aware of it. So it's very, very difficult to assess risk. But you have to balance, but you still have to do it. So you, you, you do your best to see what's, what's the worst case scenario. What's the probability of that happening? 
we do that on the, on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub in terms of when we look at investing in asset classes, what is the maximum potential loss? And, and for that, we typically have to look at it historically. For the U.S. stock market or the global stock market, it's about a 54% loss. So you have to weigh that in. So we're less worried about volatility, more worried about how much you can lose and what the probability that, that you'll lose it. So it, it can be difficult to assess risk. And risk is a function of price. So as stock valuations go up or other asset classes go up, then risk is increasing because the potential, if you buy high and it falls, that, it, that, it, that you lose money. And Klarman says it's relatively easy to know what to do when the markets are at extreme. So when stocks such as 2009 are, are dirt cheap, as are other asset classes, it's pretty easy to know what to do. But when they're, they're selling at 30 times earning, it's also easy to know what to do. You don't own them. But oftentimes, investing is somewhere in between. So you're always making incremental trade-offs between risk and return and it's, it's, it's challenging to do. Klarman says one of the most difficult challenges, challenges facing an investor is the decision to end one analysis and actually make an investment. Knowing you have less than perfect information and you're scared that something will go wrong. It's never as easy in practice as it seems when we're writing about it. So when you write about it afterwards, it, it, it's much easier but he says the best investments they've ever made in res- retrospect seemed almost like free money. It just didn't seem that way at the time that they made them. And, and one of the – I recently surveyed the members on, of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub just to, to see how we, we can improve the hub. But one of the questions is, is what's their biggest investment challenges? And one of the biggest worries is fear of making a mistake. That's normal. Even somebody like Seth Klarman, the Bow Post Group, when they finally pull the trigger, when they show that arrogance and they believe they have that competitive edge, they do so, they're afraid. They're afraid they're going to make a mistake. And they try to have that margin of safety, just like the book talks about, that he wrote, so that they're protected when something happens that they didn't participate. And what I find, and which is one reason I don't invest in individual stocks, is it seems that the more specific your investment in a particular company, the more things that are out there that could go wrong that you didn't anticipate. Whereas when I buy a basket of securities, usually primarily index funds, there are and, and they're cheap, if I can get them cheap, unfortunately, they're not always available at, at the dirt cheap as they were in 2009. But when you try to get a basket, then there's less specific things that could go wrong and you buy, you're sort of buying a basket full of embedded surprises. In Klarman's 2015 year-end letter as quoted by Business Insider, he writes, do we ever mention that investing is hard work, painstaking, relentless, and at times confounding? Separating relevant signal from noise can be especially difficult. Endless patience, great discipline, and steely resolve are required. Nothing you do will guarantee success, though you can tilt the odds significantly in your favor by having the right philosophy, mindset, 
process, teams, clients, and culture. Getting those six things right is just about everything. Complicating matters further, a successful investor must possess a number of seemingly contradictory qualities. These include the arrogance to act and to act decisively and the humility to know that you could be wrong. The acuity, flexibility, and willingness to change your mind when you realize you're wrong and the stubbornness to refuse to do so when you remain justifiably confident in your thesis. The conviction to concentrate your portfolio in your very best ideas and the common sense to, nevertheless, diversify your holdings. A healthy skepticism, but not blind contrarianism. A deep respect for the lessons of history balanced by the knowledge that things regularly happen that have never before occurred. And finally, the integrity to admit mistakes, the fortitude to risk making more of them, and the intellectual honesty not to confuse luck with skill. I spent years searching the country and the globe, to be honest, for managers that had those attributes and co-leading a research group. There were 20 of us trying to find those same managers. They are difficult to find. And then to put them together in a portfolio and to keep our clients to give so they could have the necessary patience to not fire an Oakmark fund or the other value managers during the internet bubble, really, really difficult to do, which is why I decided, isn't there a way to make it simpler? There are successful managers, value managers that, that have the attributes that we've discussed today, and they can outperform the market, but you have to be contrarian. You have to be patient, arrogant, opportunistic, and flexible, and understand risk. I decided I would rather focus on value investing, but focus on asset classes, and be willing to adjust my portfolio based on what's going on, not trying to predict the future, but when something got expensive to not own so much of it, or when it's cheap to own more of it, or when the economy is heading toward a recession to reduce my risk and be willing to wait to see how things play out. That, that's how I invest, and that's how I learned to invest, some from Seth Klarman, from some other renowned investors, but doing it in a way that I didn't have to spend so much time digging in the weeds for individual securities, because I found I didn't have the patience to do the legwork that's really required to do it well. On the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, one of the things that came out of that survey is investors would like even more specific help. So this month, April 2016, I will be releasing model portfolios with specific ETF and fund holdings for individuals that are on at different, different risk tolerances. So a conservative portfolio, moderate portfolio, aggressive portfolio. And, and this will make it easier. You'll have the, the model allocations. You'll have example ETFs. But now you have some actual model portfolios to look at and say, all right, here's the attributes of a model portfolio. Here's the expected return. How does that mesh? And, and here's, here are the funds, the ETFs to implement that. So that's this month on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. You can get more information on that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Show notes for this episode are at moneyfortherestofus.net. 
That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide and get a summary article sent you each week, a synopsis of that, that week's episode. If you would like the article I wrote in March 2000 about growth investing, you can get that if you're a U.S. investor by texting the word bubble to 44222. Or you can go to moneyfortherestofus.net and sign up there for the insider's guide. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. And I don't provide investment advice on the money for the rest of us hub. That is general education, even though I'm providing models. Ultimately, I'm not giving specific advice. You need to make your own decisions. Have a great week.